Thank you very much. Really great to be here with you, and I have brought the weather with me. I, uh, I do live on the Sunshine Coast, although my Australian family thinks it's hilarious that Eastbourne is called the Sunshine Coast. Uh, we have a Sunshine Coast in Australia, and it's a little different. It's uh, located about uh, five kilometers from the center of the sun, and you can hear your skin crackling audibly there. But uh, nice to be with you guys. Um, uh, we're thinking today about a very serious topic. We're thinking about prayers of laments. We're thinking about coming before God, not with our goodness or our fullness, but with our badness and our emptiness. Not coming before God to put on a show, coming before God with honesty. Coming before God with our need, with our sin, and with our pain. Uh, Which is not often the way we think of prayer. As much as we would never want to be a hypocrite, so often we come before God in prayer with special words, special phrases, putting on our church face, uh, and God doesn't want that. And one way you know that God does not want that is that uh, he's authored a book of prayers for us. It's called the book of Psalms. It's right there, slap bang in the middle of your Bible. You've got 150 model prayers. And did you know the number one category of prayer in the Psalms is Psalms of lament. One in three of the Psalms are Psalms where people cry out, God, where are you? Let me give you a a, a little sampling. Psalm 13, for instance, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? That's a biblical prayer. That's a good and godly and righteous way to approach the living God. Apparently, the Holy Spirit seemed to think so. That's why he authored it. Or Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. That's a biblical prayer. Or Psalm 39 ends this way. Look away from me, God, that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Just get out of my face, God. I just just want to live for a little bit and then just let me die. Amen. That's a biblical prayer. Do we ever pray like that? One in three of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And in particular, we're going to have a look at Psalm 88, which is a particularly dark prayer. Uh, It mentions the darkness three times, in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 18. So the whole thing is punctuated by darkness, surrounded by darkness. And if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Psalm 88? We're going to spend a few minutes in it. Uh, And we'll see what it looks like when you come before God with honesty. Uh, Maybe in your Bible, it tells you who wrote the psalm. It's actually a psalm uh, of Haman. Uh, You'll see that at the end of the little bit in italics. It says it's a maskil of Haman, the Ezraite. And you can look in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16 to figure out more about Haman. But he was a worship leader, okay? We've seen people leading worship here. He's one of those guys. And he was of the priestly caste in the Old Testament. He was a priest. He was a singer a songwriter, and a worship leader. And he only gets one psalm in the book of Psalms. This is his one shot at describing to us genuine biblical prayer. And this is how he prays. Psalm 88. 
Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. As we pray together, as we think about these words, let's pray for the Spirit's help. Oh, Father, please, would you minister these words to our hearts? Would you help us to become honest in prayer? Would you help us to get in touch with our true state before you, our true feelings before you, and the true state of the world before you? Help us to have honesty this morning and help us to find hope again through your word and by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So here is this honest prayer, this honest psalm. Do you know what a psalm is? A psalm is literally a song of praise. That's what the word psalm means. But is despair a song of worship? Can despair be praise? Apparently. Apparently, even despair can be praise when it's prayed when you address the complaint to the manager and don't just shoot your mouth off to everyone else. You know what it's like. You go to a bad hotel somewhere overseas and, and you decide to go into TripAdvisor and give it a one-star review so that everybody knows how dreadful it is, right? But you never addressed the complaint to the manager, did you? That's, that's, that's a bit wrong, isn't it? And it's especially wrong when it comes to God. You might have all sorts of complaints against God. I bet you do. I bet you have unanswered prayers and you have no idea why God would not say yes to your request. It was a good request. It might have glorified his name. It would have been good for you, that's for sure. And he said no. Do you have a complaint? Of course you've got a complaint. What do you do with that complaint? See, there's two different things you can do with that complaint. Or rather, there's probably three different things you can do with that complaint. Thing number one you can do with it is you just bottle it up. And you say, no, no, I'm fine. I'm not disappointed. I'm not disappointed in life, I'm not disappointed in God. This is what we call the English option. This is, because you don't get angry. 
in England, nobody gets angry in England. No, you're just, just a little bit frustrated and you'll never speak to that person ever again, but you're not angry. Angry, you'll be completely civil and you'll put on the kettle and we'll have a nice cup of tea and that'll be fine. And then it comes out in traffic, right? I, you know, I drive the same roads that you do. I, I know what happens to English people, right? You bottle it up. There's no complaints, there's no disappointment here. So that's one thing you can do with your complaint. You can bottle it up and not tell anybody. Or you can tell everybody else and become bitter, right? And you can gossip. And, and this is the great sin of the Israelites in the Old Testament, right? Grumbling. You know, the number one sin of the Israelites in the Old Testament as they're trekking through the wilderness. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Now, the issue is not so much that they've got complaints, the issue is, who are they addressing those complaints to? They're not taking the, the, the complaint to the manager, are they? But in the Psalms, we, we realize what a true and healthy, a psychologically healthy and a spiritually healthy thing to do with our complaints. You know what we should do? We should pray them. And even as you pray complaint before God, it becomes praise. It becomes a song of worship. So here in Psalm 88, we have this darkness that the psalmist is surrounded by. And he, he makes it known to God and to everyone else before God that it is God who has him in this darkness. Did you notice the, the word you that kept coming back in the psalm? You have put me here. It's on you, God. It's on you. That's a very interesting view, isn't it, of the sovereignty of God, that God is so sovereign that when I'm in a pit, even if it's a pit of my own making, even if I can point to all other earthly causes as to why I'm in this pit, still he has this sense of, well, God, somehow you have allowed this to happen. Somehow it's you. Even though there's all other people who are responsible and perhaps I myself am responsible for this pit, but still at the end of the day, Lord, it's you. It's you I'm dealing with. And you know, it takes real faith in God to get angry at God. You know that? It takes real faith in God to be disappointed with God. Think of it this way. You know in John chapter 11, Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, dies. And they are such good friends that the way that his sisters let Jesus know that Lazarus is dead is they just say, the one you love is dead. Or rather, the one you love is ill. He's not dead yet. The one you love is ill. Which, which goes to show the, the, the strength of this relationship. The one you love. And instantly Jesus, ah, that must be Lazarus. Lazarus is ill. And it's a, an infuriating verse in John chapter 11, verse 5. It says, Lazarus loves Martha and Mary, the sisters, and he loves Lazarus, so he delays two more days. And the nightmare scenario develops and Lazarus dies. Jesus loves everybody involved and he delays. He, if you like, doesn't answer their prayer. And he allows the nightmare scenario to develop. He still loves everybody, but he allows the nightmare scenario to develop. Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest, when we pray for healing, at what point do we allow Jesus to let us die? You know, if I'm 80 years old and I ask for another 10 years of life, is he going to give me another 10 years? And if I'm 90, does he give me another 10 years? If I'm 100, 110, please give me another 10 years. 120, 100. At what stage did Jesus actually allow me to die and then raise me up into the true healing that he wants to give to the whole world? At what stage does he allow 
people to die and then raise them, which is what he wants to do with the world. Well, this is what he does in microcosm with Lazarus. He allows him to actually die and then he shows up at the funeral and his sisters want to have words with him. Wouldn't you want to have words with him? And his sisters are kind of embodying the Psalms as they come up to Jesus. You know what they say? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters say that to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Think about that. That is a statement both of deep faith and deep frustration, isn't it? It's deep faith. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They know that. They know that about Jesus. They trust him enough to know that he is the conqueror of death. Death cannot stand being, could not stand being in his presence. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What a statement of faith. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What a statement of anguish and complaint, right? But it takes the faith to make the complaint, doesn't it? And that's the way it is all throughout the Bible. It takes deep faith in God's to then address your complaints to God. Because if you're not addressing your complaints to God, you probably don't think he's in charge. If you're not going to the manager with your complaint, you probably don't think he's powerful enough. You, don't, you, you probably don't think he's over this situation. You probably don't think he's on the ball, do you? If you're not addressing your complaint to him. Actually, addressing your complaint to God says to God, actually, you are in charge. And I trust you enough to complain to you. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But because you are the deathless, powerful, sovereign God, therefore I can come to you and I can be real. Here are these ways that the psalmist is real with God. In Psalm 88 from verse 3, he speaks about being buried alive. I'll give you some images that the, that the psalmist gives to us. Here's this one image of the anguish that he's going through. Verse three, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. I am confined and cannot escape. That's verse eight, I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. So here's this picture of being in the lowest pit along with the dead. It's this idea of being buried alive. One person who really captured the Psalms, I think better than anybody else, was Charles Spurgeon. Uh, in the 19th century, this, this great uh, preacher in London. Uh, I think he's written the best commentary on the book of Psalms, and it's no coincidence that he has struggled with depression. He, he did struggle with depression uh, throughout his life. I think those two things are absolutely linked. And here, Charles Spurgeon is commenting on these verses. He says this, Haman, the psalmist, felt as if he were as utterly forgotten as those whose carcasses are left to rot on the battlefield, as when a soldier mortally wounded bleeds unheeded amid the heaps of slain and remains to his last expiring groan unpitied and unsuckered. So did Haman sigh out his soul in loneliest sorrow feeling as if even God himself had quite forgotten him. And then Spurgeon comments, how low the spirits of good and brave men will sometimes sink. Under the influence of certain disorders, everything will wear a somber aspect and the heart will dive into the profoundest deeps of misery. 
And then he says, it is all very well for those who are in robust health and full of spirits to blame those whose lives are sicklied over with the pale cast of melancholy. But the evil is as real as a gaping wound and all the more hard to bear because it lies so much in the region of the soul that to the inexperienced it appears to be a mere matter of fancy and diseased imagination. But dear friend, never ridicule the depressed. Their pain is real. Though much of the evil lies in the imagination, it is not imaginary. Are they amazing words from a man writing a century and a half ago? Before Freud, before modern psychotherapy, before anything that we commonly think of, when we think of mental health issues, he was diagnosing the problem so beautifully, so starkly, because he's got his Bible open in front of him. And there is Haman. And if he wouldn't get a clinical diagnosis of depression after somebody reading Psalm 88, I think he should go to the next GP, right? But maybe you're thinking, all oh, Christians, Christians don't get depression. Christians can't be depressed. Tell Spurgeon that. A greater saint than any of us in here. Tell Haman that. We've been reading his words for the best part of 3,000 years. God the Holy Spirit has authored this for the church to pray before God. Oh, but Christians don't get depression, do they? Have you, have you read the Bible? <laughs> On page after page, there are people wrestling in the darkness. People feeling as though they are buried alive. Or people feeling as though they are drowning. That's an image here in the psalm. In verse 7, the psalmist says, Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Or from verse 15, he says, from my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. Have you ever felt like that? Like life is just, the waters are coming up and coming up and coming up and you get up on tiptoe but it's not enough. It's a common theme in the Psalms. Psalm 69, the waters have come up to my neck, says King David. Have you ever felt like that? Or Psalm 42, all your waves and breakers have washed over me. You know, in Psalm 42, it's already happened. He's already drowning. Have you ever felt like you're drowning? Maybe you're feeling like you're drowning right now. Life is just far too much. And you've given up standing on tiptoe because you just can't do it. You don't have the strength anymore. And the waves and breakers of life have swept over you. And maybe you sit there and you think, but I shouldn't feel like this because nothing too terrible has happened to me. Maybe there are people who, for whom terrible things have happened, but you know, sometimes it happens in church that you just sit, just sit and you, you think, well, ah, physically speaking, I've got it better than so-and-so. And worse things do happen at sea, so I, I shouldn't really be feeling like this. And I, you know, if I broke my leg, at least people will see I've got a cast on me and they will understand that there's something wrong with me. I don't have a broken leg, I've, I've got a broken spirit. Maybe you don't feel like you've got the right to feel anguish, to feel like you're drowning. Listen to Spurgeon again on these verses, brilliant. He says, the mind can descend far lower than the body. 
Okay, so if you think, I don't have the right to feel low because I'm in full physical health, Spurgeon says, think about this, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. Physically, there's no such thing as a bottomless pit. Mentally, there is. Spurgeon says, the flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. You know, if someone keeps on cutting you, you're going to bleed out and you're going to die. At some stage, that kind of physical anguish ends. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Wow. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. Do you know this anguish? Do you know what it is to feel like you're buried alive? Do you know what it feels like to be drowning? And thirdly, do you know what it feels like to be abandoned That's this other picture that the psalmist gives of how he's feeling. In verse eight, he says to God, you have taken from me my closest friends and you have made me repulsive to them. Verse 18, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Can you kind of imagine the the images? There he is in a party and he seems to be having fun with his friends and then God shows up and whispers something in their ear as he looks at you. And then the look on your friend's face just changes to disgust. And God takes them by the hands and they leave with him. And you're left by yourself and and you don't know what's going on. You've just been abandoned and God has taken away your closest friends and neighbors. It's very difficult to, to think of anything more deeply agonizing than family breakdown the relational breakdown, then the betrayal of trust. It's very difficult to think of things that are worse than that. But this is what the psalmist is experiencing. He feels like he's buried alive. He feels like he's drowning. He feels like he's abandoned. And he brings it all before God and he pours it out. He pours it out and he pours it out and he dares to use the second person singular, you, you. This is on you, God. What are you going to do about it? Do you ever pray like that? If we're always praying like Psalm 88, something's wrong. If you never pray, like Psalm 88, maybe something's wrong. These prayers are in the Bible for a reason, so that we might pray them. And you notice how he still is faithful in the midst of all this anguish. He still does pray this anguish before God. Verses one and two, he cries out day and night before God. Verse nine, every day he calls upon the Lord. Verse 13, he cries in the morning and in the evening he's constantly faithfully praying like this. What would it look like for us to pray out our anguish? What would it be like for us to address our complaints to the manager? I think it would look something like this. Um, God, I really don't like you right now. I'm trying, but I just don't. We prayed for this thing not to happen. Lots of people prayed, and then it did happen. 
and it's on you now, God. This thing is on you. I know it says in the Bible, all things work together for good for those who love you. All right, God, you've got a lot of work to do then. You've got a lot of work to do. I don't know where you are. And the thing is, you stripped everything else away from me, like flesh from my bones, and I'm left here all alone. All I've got is you, and I don't know where you are. But you're all I've got. You're all I've got, but I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are, but you're all I've got. Amen. You ever pray like that? At points, all of us need to be praying like that. The Holy Spirit authored this prayer and left it in the Bible here, along with 50 other prayers of lament to teach us how to bring before God our anguish. Is that all we learn from Psalm 88? If that was all we learnt from Psalm 88, that would be wonderful. And later on in the service, there are prayer teams here, and if you've got anguish, if you've got complaint, if you've got lament you want to bring before God, do it together with the prayer team. Don't, don't leave here with it bottled up still. Come to the prayer team. Pray out your soul. Pour your heart out before the Lord. But there's something else that Psalm 88 teaches us. Because have you ever thought about who this Haman is? Who is this Haman who's praying this prayer? Well, he's a priest and he's a worship leader. And you guys know how to read your Old Testament, don't you? You, you guys know that every Old Testament king is meant to be pointing you towards the true king, Jesus. Every Old Testament prophet is meant to be pointing you to the true prophet, Jesus. Every Old Testament priest is meant to be pointing you to the great high priest, our one mediator with God. And when Jesus Christ came, you know what he did? He prayed through the Psalms. He was the chief prayer. He took all these prayers onto his own lips and prayed them as our brother and high priest. He experienced all this anguish. Did he ever feel like he was buried alive? Luke 22, verse 41, the night before Jesus dies, he withdrew about a stone's throw uh, in, in the garden of Gethsemane. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Did Jesus ever feel like he was drowning? Actually, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus essentially quotes Psalm 88, verse 3. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with trouble to the point of death. That's Psalm 88, verse 3. He's quoting, he's praying Psalm 88 in that Garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed to the point of death. It's not just that his death is overwhelming him. He feels so overwhelmed by it all that it could kill him. Did Jesus ever feel abandoned? Well, of course as he rises from prayer, there comes his betrayer, Jesus, betraying him with a kiss, and still he prays, still with his arms outstretched to the world, still calling God, my God. And as he dies on the cross, he calls out Psalm 22, doesn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes up all our prayers of anguish, 
all our psalms of lament. He feels them, he experiences them in full, and then he prays them in our name and on our behalf as our great high priest. So that stunningly, even as you feel God forsaken, you can know the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus met us in our God forsakenness. What kind of God is this? A God who meets you in God forsakenness because he experienced God forsakenness for us. What kind of God is this? Where can we flee from such a God that even in our God forsakenness, our despair and our anguish, Jesus is right there. And when you have no words to pray and you feel like you can't say anything, there he is at your right hand and he's praying for you. He is your great high priest. Brene Brown is a uh, psychiatrist and, and uh, sociologist in the States. and um, She speaks of, of two words that always hinder when you're helping someone in suffering and two words that always help. If you've got a friend in suffering, here are two words that always hinder. You tell them, at least. Right? They're in trouble. And you say, you know, I don't know. They've just had a miscarriage. And you say, well, at least you know you can get pregnant now. Does that help? You know, Johnny's getting thrown out of school and your friend says, well, at least Sarah's getting A's. Does that help? Having trouble in your marriage and somebody else says, well, at least you are married. Does that help? At least never really helps. But Brene Brown says that there are two words that always help in suffering. Me too. Me too. And what does the God of heaven say when he looks at us in our anguish, in our pain, and in our sorrow? Does he yell down from heaven and say, at least worse things happen at sea. Lightning doesn't strike twice. Is that what he says? Does he minimize it? No, he doesn't minimize it at all. He encourages us to maximize how we're feeling and to express it. And then he climbs down into the pit with us and he says, me too. Me too. And he offers to pray these prayers with us and for us. So as you're wanting to pour out your soul to God, what can you do? If you're in this place of anguish and honesty, maybe level one is just come before Jesus with groans. Come before him with groans that words cannot express. Because Romans chapter eight says the spirit is groaning in you. Maybe, maybe you can't even put words to it. Come before him with groans. And then if you can manage some more, why don't you open up Psalm 88? And why don't you just pray it? And just say, in Jesus' name, amen. And maybe as you pray it, maybe verse three really catches your heart and you just, you add a little line of your own and then verse six catches your heart and you say, and yeah, God, because this and you expand on it and it becomes your own prayer and at some point, at some point you start to feel fellowship with Jesus, the God forsaken one, the one who draws near to you in your anguish. Is that something you can do? I'll finish with this. A friend of ours uh, in our church, she's, she's moved on, but uh, she struggled with all sorts of depression and self-harm. And one day she, she wrote me a letter 
Um, although she didn't address it to me, she addressed it to Jesus. It was kind of her prayer, it was kind of her attempt at pouring out her heart. But she didn't know how to pray it, and so she emailed it. And she said, dear Jesus, and then she sent it to me. And you're going to think Australians are even more arrogant than you ever thought possible, but I, I decided to respond to her as Jesus. Right? Um, she started it, though. She started it. Here is what I think Jesus says to you. If, if you're ready to pour out your heart in anguish, in lament, here is what Jesus says to each one of us. I wrote to Lucy, dear Lucy, I hear you, I know you, I'm for you. In the midst of your darkness and pain and in the midst of your sin, I hear you, I know you, and I'm for you. I have you on my heart before the Father and I pray for you constantly. I offer to God the perfect praise, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect obedience as your great priest. And I'm here to tell you, you are more than forgiven, Lucy. Your sins have been covered, cleansed, and removed as far as the east is from the west. My work on the cross was complete. There's nothing between you and God now, only me. And I'm keeping you together. I will do that forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. When you feel unable to pray, I'm praying for you. When you feel far from God, I am lifting you to him. When you wallow in the darkness, I've got you in the light. When you sin, I am bearing the wounds of your forgiveness. When you despair, I will hope for you. When you suffer, I sympathize from the depths of my heart. When you die, I will welcome you with open arms. I am your salvation. I am your standing with God. I am your identity. I am your future. I am your life. You are united to me, and I'm never letting go. Yours forever. Jesus. Should we pray together? Let's, let's pray. And let me, again, encourage you, if there are things that you need to pour out before God, please make use of the prayer team. Please do. We have a God who's big enough to handle it. And we have a Lord Jesus who sympathizes from the depths of his heart. Our dear Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. You took all our songs of lament onto your own lips and you prayed them. You took up our anguish and our pain and our sorrow. You dived down into the pit deeper than we've ever been. We thank you that you sympathize with us. Would you loosen our tongues? By your spirit, would you help us to put words to the lament, words to the anguish, that we might become before you in honesty, and know you drawing near, giving comfort and giving hope. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.